We're continuing our Advent series in the book of Matthew, so if you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to ask you to turn to Matthew, the first gospel in the New Testament, chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you, so please feel free to use that. And when you found Matthew chapter 1, I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to hear read together the word of the living God. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, this is the word of the Lord. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Oh, how precious is it to us, Lord. The story of Jesus, our Savior. So we thank you for it. And now, Lord, as we gather around the story this morning, your inspired word, we pray that you would, through the power of your Holy Spirit, give us understanding. And as always, Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to see you in ways that we have never seen before. Lord, experience you in new and fresh ways this morning as our living Savior. So we... Submit ourselves now to you and to your word, praying for and believing change will come to our lives that will glorify you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As we saw a couple of weeks ago when we began this series, Matthew begins his story like this. Biblos Genesis, Jesu Christu. The book of Genesis, or the beginning of Jesus Christ. And then in the next 16 verses, Matthew establishes how thoroughly human Jesus is. If you were here last week, we looked at some of the cast of characters contained in these verses. These from whom Jesus has descended. And we saw among them are deceivers and prostitutes and adulteresses and adulterers, as well as those who loved God, some of them In the same person. Jesus is thoroughly human. But he's not only human. So this morning we come to verse 18 and we read, Jesu Christu, hey Genesis. Once again, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. And now what follows is the story of how Jesus was born. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. This, of course, is 
miraculous. This is, of course, is divine, brought about, as God's word tells us, by the Holy Spirit of God. And so what Matthew is doing here is making a hugely important theological statement in the way he arranges his story. He's very intentional about his use of the word Genesis. Genesis in verse 1, followed by the human story of Jesus. Genesis in verse 18, followed by the divine story of Jesus. Genesis, Genesis. Matthew wants us to get the connection. It must be unmistakable in the minds of his readers that Jesus is both human and divine. I'm often reminded of the quote of the president of the seminary that I attended, Robertson McQuilkin. Any student who is there under his presidency knows this particular quote. And it's this, that it's far easier to go to a logical extreme than to stay in the center of biblical tension. And we know that's true. The pendulum always swings, doesn't it? We've just survived a season of political extremity, right? Polarization, politically speaking. And we know what that looks like. And we probably don't like it very much. It's all or nothing. If you don't agree with my side, then you are completely wrong. It's just easier for us to dismiss out of hand than to wrestle through possibilities. That there's truth in both places. So then we come to the the person of Jesus Christ. And this theological term that we call hypostatic union. You know that term? Impress your friends tomorrow at work. Hypostatic union. And it means simply this, that Jesus is both 100% human and he is 100% divine. Jesus Christ is uniquely this. We don't see this anywhere else, and so it's very difficult for us to understand. And so it's easier for us to go to an extreme than to stay in the center and keep Jesus ever before us as both. Totally human, totally divine. We often focus on the humanity of Jesus at Christmas because, well, that's the reason for the season, isn't it? From all eternity, all eternity past, Jesus had only ever been God. But in this moment of time, he, for the first time, took on human flesh and came to earth. And so we celebrate That he did not look down on us from on high with disgust as a basket of deplorables. We are a basket. We are a basket of deplorables. All of us. Without exception. But here's the good news. Jesus got in the basket with us. Right? He became human. He came to dwell among us. And so we celebrate the humanity of Christ. And we read passages like Hebrews 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We want to make Jesus approachable, because Jesus is approachable, right? That's good news. And he is approachable because he is human. He has experienced this life as you and I experience it. But Matthew reminds us here in these verses this morning that Jesus is also divine. Listen to the way that Matthew 
tells this story of Jesus' birth in describing what has to be the single most miraculous, mysterious event in human history. Not only in how it came about through a virgin birth, but why it came about. God himself taking on flesh, leaving heaven for earth. When Matthew writes, he is reverent and he's reserved. He uses only eight words in the Greek text. Recorded it in verse 18. She was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Two verses later, when Matthew records the angel's visit to Joseph, the angel says simply this, what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Did Joseph know more details than that? Did Matthew know more details than he wrote? We cannot answer that question. What we do know is that this is what he was inspired to write. It's brief, it's beautiful, it's reserved, it's reverent. I think Matthew understands the truth that we saw a few weeks back in Deuteronomy chapter 9. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. Alexander Pope, famous 18th century English poet. And he wrote an essay on criticism in 1711. And you're going to recognize a quote from this work because it's often used. It was taken as the name of a movie and Elvis Presley himself recorded a song that includes this quote. And here's what Pope writes. Nay, you know, they always say nay back then. Nay, fly to the altars. There they'll talk you dead. For fools rush in where angels fear to tread. Now, if by altars, Pope means the church. And if by they, they will talk you dead, he means pastors. Then I must say, guilty as charged. We often talk too much. And if you say amen, I'm coming out of the pulpit. (laughs) But we do. Too often we don't leave the secret things to God. It seems like we can't resist rushing into those mysteries that even the angels of God cannot fathom. The Apostle Peter writes about things that that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Even for the angels... The gospel was a mystery of God, one they desired, one they longed to see, but one they dared not trod into until God should reveal the mystery. Calvin calls it the highest praise to the gospel, that it contains treasures of wisdom as yet concealed and hidden from angels. And so in an attempt to make this miraculous mystery more real, sometimes we overstep with our imagination And with our illustrations, Pope goes on to write this. Distrustful sense with modest caution speaks, but rattling nonsense in full volleys breaks and never shocked and never turned aside, bursts out resistless with a thundering tide. Blah, 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 blah. That's what we do. Because we have lost the sense of the holy and the reverent. 
I don't know about you, but it's been my observation. If I go to a movie that I really like, a feel-good movie, you say, oh, this is just the best movie. I feel so good. This is going to be nominated for an Academy Award. It's just so great. And then you look up what the critic says, and they pan it every time. They don't like the feel-good movies. They say things like, well, it's not real enough. It's not raw enough. It's not emotionally complex enough. And you know what the art is like of our culture and music and film and television and even what they call shock jock preachers. In your face, crude, vulgar, this, our culture says, is, is what makes it real. You have to tell it like it is. And so I'm sure the critics would have panned Matthew's story when it hit the stands. Oh, Matthew's repressed. Matthew's backward. Matthew's afraid to tell it like it is. But Matthew is none of these things. He is reserved and he's reverent in these very holy matters. And I believe that our Christmas season would be transformed if all of us could recapture a sense of reverent awe and wonder at our fully divine Jesus. Not to make him more distant from us, but because of his divinity and what he has done in his divinity that we would love him more. I think if we would ponder these things, as Luke says, Jesus' mother Mary did, not just in our worship, but in our lives, it would allow a holy awe to come over us. And I believe our lives would be radiant. Reverence has always been the reaction of God's people to his activity in their lives. Do you remember the, the famous dream that Jacob had of that ladder? And the, the foot of the ladder was on ground and the top of the ladder reached to heaven and at the top of the ladder there stood the Lord and there were angels going up and down the ladder, ascending and descending. And from the top of the ladder, the Lord said, I am the Lord, I am with you. I will watch over you wherever you go. I will not leave you until I've done what I promised you. That's great news, isn't it? And then Jacob awoke from his sleep and he says, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of it. How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. That is reverent awe. Moses saw a strange bush. It was on fire. It was burning, and yet the bush was not consumed. So he approached this strange sight to see what was going on. But God said to him, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. There's a way to approach the holy. David In Psalm 5 writes, because of your unfailing love, I can enter your house. I will worship at your temple with deepest awe. The love of God produces joy in us, doesn't it? But it also produces deepest reverence and awe. An unnamed lyricist writes in Psalm 130, If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that we can, with reverence, serve you. The forgiveness of the Lord produces great joy, doesn't it? We rejoice in our forgiveness, but it also produces reverence and awe. 
We've already read this, this morning the story of Mary in this beautiful act of worship. Somehow Mary got it. Somehow she saw when she looked at Jesus more than just the human. And so she lavished on him this precious gift. While those who saw only the humanity of Jesus criticized her and her act as waste. Then there is Cornelius. He's a Roman army officer. He was a devout man. He feared the Lord. He prayed regularly. He gave to the poor. God gave Cornelius a vision. He said, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard and your gifts to the poor have been received by God as an offering. Now send someone to Joppa and get this man named Peter. And Cornelius obeyed. And Peter came back and he entered Cornelius' house. And as he came into the house, as Peter came into the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. And even though Peter said to him, stand up, I'm only a man myself, still in the heart of Cornelius, because the Lord had been active in his life, because the Lord answered prayer, his response was one of reverent awe. And then I think of the Christmas carol, Silent Night. Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright round yon virgin, mother and child. Holy infant, so tender and mild, sleep in heavenly peace. Silent night, holy night, shepherds quake at the sight, glories stream from heaven afar. Heavenly hosts sing, Alleluia, Christ the Savior is born. Silent night, holy night, Son of God, love's pure light. Radiant beams from thy holy face with the dawn of redeeming grace, Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. Now, was it a silent night? Probably not. Childbirth is rarely silent. Neither are the animals in a stable. And the realists like to point that out to us. But on Christmas Eve in 1818, when Joseph Moore showed Franz Gruber his poem and asked him to set it to music, I'm not convinced that Moore thought it was a a silent night either. I think Moore was just following Matthew's lead in this, leading us to a place of reverence and awe. And I think that's why this song has resounded in our hearts now for almost 200 years. It's not because we believe it was really that way, but rather because the sense of awe it gives us about the birth of the one who is so divine. Since Jesus is divine, we must recapture a sense of holy reverence that people have always had when God is at work in their lives. We've got to keep the biblical tension. Jesus was human. He is friend of sinners, but he's also divine. And it's with all that we should speak about the Lord until our minds are completely set free from their bondage to sin, which won't be until heaven. There are realities that you and I cannot understand. The realities, wonders like the one that Matthew writes about here. She was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Our fallenness will only degrade these realities. Unless we leave the secret things to God. It's before these beautiful realities that we must bow in reverence and awe. Acknowledging that this beautiful, 
miraculous reality is beyond our ability to imagine or conceive. But then, when we finish singing Silent Night, and we blow out the candles, and we exit the doors from this beautiful place, you and I enter a world that is neither quiet nor reverent. And it's only because you and I have taken time to be in awe and wonder of the complete divinity of Christ that we can not only face that world, but that you and I can bring change to the world. I was reminded Thursday of why it is so vital that we balance the humanity and the divinity of Christ. I was driving down the street and I passed a church and it had this banner hanging on the fence. In huge, bold caps, the sign commanded, Be the church. Underneath, be the church, this was written. Protect the environment. Care for the poor. Forgive often. Reject racism. Fight for the powerless. Share earthly and spiritual resources. Embrace diversity. Love God. Enjoy this life. Now, of course, everything mentioned on this banner is absolutely what we, as the church, ought to do what we are commanded to do. But what is missing from this banner? There is absolutely no mention of Jesus Christ. And if this church only gives a nod to a generic God, at the very bottom of the banner, number eight in a list of nine, love God, then that's a church that's not getting Matthew's double Genesis message here. If Jesus is only... Verses 2 through 16, if he's only human, then the call to do all these things will only lead to frustration and failure. Only if Jesus is only human and not also through the Spirit, as verse 18 tells us, can his name and call to worship him be deleted from the banner. What do the Scriptures say? Scriptures do not tell us that Jesus is number 8 on the list. Philippians chapter 2 God exalted Jesus Jesus to the highest place, right? The highest place. And gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Colossians chapter 1. He is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. The NIV translates it so that he might have the supremacy. And the ESV translates it so that he might be preeminent, right? Jesus Christ is first because he is 100% human and he is 100% divine. And if the church is intent on stripping Jesus of his title, if the church insists that we have progressed so much, we become so enlightened that we cannot Or need not believe in a virgin birth or a resurrection from the dead. If it's determined to keep Jesus only as a man among men, one among equals, then why do we bother to do any of these things in the first place? If Jesus is just a baby in a manger, and if he just grew up to be a thoroughly moral man and an excellent teacher, then how can he bring about real change? Where is his power? How can he forgive sins? And what claim could a merely human Jesus possibly have on our lives 2,000 years later? 
in a culture that's changed so drastically? Why must we feed the poor? Why should we not abuse the earth's resources for our own convenience? Why not be racist and let the best race win? And if the weak can't care for themselves, then so be it. Survival of the fittest. Why not? If Jesus is just a man, then he isn't that much different from you and from me. And you can consider his Sermon on the Mount nothing but non-binding suggestions. Well, I think you should turn the other cheek, but who am I to say? I'm just a man. Well, I think you should love your enemies and, and, and pray for those who persecute you, but who am I to say? After all, I'm just a man. Oh, I think you should give to the poor, but, but who am I to say? I'm just a man. If he is not the Messiah, the divine Christ, then what authority does he have to command any of this from us? And if we try to answer the, the why should we with, well, because it's the right thing to do, then we must also ask, why is it the right thing to do? Who said? Jesus? So what? He's just a man. But then the philosophical gymnastics begin, don't they? Because those who believe that we originated from a big bang are left with this dilemma. How is there a right or wrong? What is right or wrong? And so they begin to try to make a case for right or wrong apart from a God who has decreed what is right and what is wrong. It's because that Jesus is divine that he can require these things of us. And because Jesus is divine, that we must do them. Look, I know that we're all PCA right here. And I know that most of us acknowledge the truth of the divinity of Christ. But I know as well that it's just as easy to act as if Jesus is not divine. What I mean is that it's easy for us to do all the things that we do in our own strength. Sometimes motivated by our own guilt because we drove by a, a sign and saw a banner without ever engaging with the divinity of Jesus. I can give hot dogs out to the poor all day long without ever engaging with the divinity of Jesus. We can be very busy in the PCA. We can be very busy here at Redeemer doing all the right things. But why are we doing them? What's our motivation? If what we do does not flow from being in awe of the divine, resurrected, now reigning Jesus. If what we do does not flow from a compulsion to do what blesses the heart of the one who has blessed us, then what we do will lead to burnout every single time. And you and I will become joyless Christians. I've seen some lack of joy here in this place, particularly this time of year. Doing what you must do instead of what you are privileged to do. And kingdom work becomes a chore, and every obstacle or failure will make you bitter. But when we listen to Matthew, Genesis, Genesis, fully human, fully divine, we will joyfully and reverently engage in kingdom work. Our service will be a loving response to the grace of the loving, reigning Savior. And our service will be powerful because we call on a divine Savior who is alive. And because He is alive, He is with us. He is not merely a human Jesus. If so, He would have moldered in the tomb, 
many years ago. So Matthew's first words to us, Genesis, how Jesus came to be Jesus. And what are Matthew's very last words? I would tell you to turn to the very end of Matthew, but you already know these words. This is how Matthew closes his gospel. He gives the last word to Jesus, and Jesus says this, Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I am with you. The continuation of Jesus. He didn't say, I'm leaving my suggestions with you. No, he said, I am with you. And only someone who is divine and therefore eternal can make such a promise. Only because he is divine are you and I not alone. Because he is divine, he has a claim on your life and he has a claim on my life. Because he is divine, we must obey him. We must care for the earth. We must feed the poor. We must fight for the powerless. Because he is divine, he sits even now at the right hand of God the Father, and he is our source of power. Matthew writes, Genesis, Genesis. He establishes the humanity and the divinity of Jesus. Genesis, recreation is possible. Genesis, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Genesis, the gates to paradise are reopened because Jesus is divine. Genesis, sins are forgiven because Jesus is divine. Genesis, Jesus is 100% human and 100% divine. May we know him to be so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. True. Thank you for inspiring Matthew to Write it for us and thank you for the way you inspired Matthew to write it. So that your message to us will be unmistakable. You, Lord Jesus, 100% human, 100% divine, and there we will leave it because we cannot begin to comprehend how such a thing can be true. We only bow in reverence before the reality of it. You are both completely human and completely divine. And so, Father, I pray that you would enable us to interact with Jesus in this way. To know him in his humanity. Lord Jesus, you are our friend. Friend of sinners. That's what you are. You are approachable. Lord, you're also divine. That should make us flee from you. It should make us love you more. Knowing that though you are God... You came to earth to be with us. Father, I pray that as we do the things that you call us to do as a church, these wonderful things, caring for the earth you've given us, protecting the powerless, giving to the poor, all of those things, Lord, may we do them because you are our our divine Savior. Because you call us to do them, because you empower us to do them, and Lord, may we do them with great joy because we see you. For who you are as you reveal this great mystery to us. Father, help us to be reverent people in our lives. As we speak of you, as we tell others of you. Great joy, yes, but reverent awe as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.